0: Friends and neighbors, you're listening to Portland from the Left. My name's Josh, and I use he and him pronouns.
1: My name is Piper. I use she, her pronouns. And today we're talking about the Portland City Charter and the charter review process with our friend Thursday.
2: Yeah, I'm Thursday. I use she and they pronouns. Um, I've lived in Portland for a while now, and I just am very interested in all of the the uh, ways that the city works or doesn't work. (laughs) And I've written a couple of zines and explainers about what's going on and my opinions on what's going on.
0: You might've seen Thursday's threads on things in the city, uh, council in local municipal politics. Um, Thursday uh, Thursday's written tons of stuff that I've shared over the last couple of years, especially related to the uprising or related to me- local municipal mm-hmm. politics and stuff like that. Really appreciate Thursday's work in Portland.
1: Thursday, I'm really glad you're here because um, when we asked people what they wanted to know about the city charter, uh, I learned that people don't really know what it is. So I think we should start there. Um. Could you tell us what is a city charter, you know, and how?
2: where did ours come from? Absolutely. So to start off with, a city charter is kind of like a constitution for a country. It's a document that kind of explains what powers the city is claiming for itself. It can set some major policies. It can cover a whole host of things um, from, you know, how laws are enforced to how local elections run, um, all those sorts of nitty gritty details. So the city charter uh, gets its power from a couple of places. Um, so Uh, On paper, (laughs) it gets its power from a couple of other documents. In Oregon, uh, the Oregon State Constitution grants cities and towns the power to write their own charters. Mm -hmm. Um, And other states have kind of similar situations. They may call the founding document for a city a charter. They might call it a statute. But it's, it's a big piece of paper with some details in it. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that states can basically just grant power to city charters is dependent on, and this is this is very inside baseball, but just to <laughs> make sure we, we all know where it's coming from, it's dependent on a court decision from the Iowa State Supreme Court in the 1860s. Whoa. It's called Dylan's Rule for the judge who did it. Um, and it basically is a court decision on the state level that says when municipal governments can have certain powers and when they can use those powers. Hmm. There's some further case law that's kind of built upon that. But basically, when Judge Dillon wrote this opinion in the 1860s, all the other states were like, "Ooh, we like that. We're just going to acquire this opinion and apply it to our things. So it's not a uh, Supreme Court of the U.S. granting this power. It's not the U.S. Constitution. It's kind of dependent on case law.
1: Okay. And in Portland, what are some of the things that are written and defined by our city charter?
2: There's there's a few things in there that maybe aren't as relevant as they <laughs> could be. Um, so we do have, like, the, the standard structure of the city government laying out that this is a commission form of government, those sorts of things. We've got... Um, that outlook. seems important. It, it seems relevant. <laughs> um Local elections, also pretty relevant, I think. Um, things like oversight for different agencies, public utilities, commissions. Those those all feel like a good fit. Um, but our city charter also currently includes a bunch of rules about the fire and police disability retirement and death benefit plan. Huh. Maybe maybe a little less relevant to the overall running of the city there's also some other interesting things like a standing advertisement contract with whatever newspaper is currently determined to be the official city newspaper at the
0: time wait a second wait wait a second second. wait a second what did you just say so
2: officially this is like an advertising contract that covers things like public notices from the city but it's basically a thing in the the legal framework for the city that says, hey, we're just going to have a official newspaper that we do public notices for. And since they're official, we're just going to go ahead and do a standing advertising contract with them. Wow. That seems like a
1: really weird thing to have in the charter.
0: The charter. Yeah. Especially as a constitution for the city, as you describe it, something that defines us, defining us. and. Like, it, including our relationship with the Oregonian, which I assume is the paper of record or whatever.
2: Yeah, I believe I believe so, um, wow. that the Oregonian is the paper of record. It's not entirely uncommon because of that public record mm-hmm. sure aspect, yeah. but the advertising contract part of it does, you know, introduce some um, reasons why the paper of record might be so closely tied to the existing power structure
1: wow this is kind of blowing my mind right now i'm gonna need to take uh, a second (laughs) uh,
0: this specifically i think you just i mean that we could do a couple hours probably on this (laughs) i was just commenting on i think it was shane Kavanaugh. it might have been one of the other people at the oregonian but they um were real fussy about um nobody at city council sharing a story they had recently done um Uh, I'm trying to remember it was almost certainly about gun violence or something like that Um, and it was some kind of big headline you know Sunday story that they did and nobody had commented on it or shared it in 24 hours because this was the following Monday this is like last week Um, and they were like real upset they're like for some reason nobody at city council has shared or commented on this very important story about and of course gun violence is very serious I like take it incredibly seriously that people are getting killed in my city it is a problem that we need to sort out and, and help find solutions for but the idea that like
1: a specific news story yeah city, to be the shared. city
0: commissioners needed to share the story or comment on it or link to it or whatever within 24 hours after it was published it's just like such a um a foolish and like um ridiculous assertion. so, so now hearing that well there is an advertising contract in the city charter so they were kind of like you know not that they were like legally obligated but there certainly is a more it's cozy a, uh a thicker relationship we'll say a thick like thieves
2: wow oh absolutely
1: <laughs> okay so that just blew my mind um <laughs> but i also want to i also want to understand a little bit like okay so there's the city charter and there's also legislation and how those are different and like who like how is the city charter enforced like what like what does it mean to have something in the charter and what do you do about that if say someone what if they violated that standing contract or something like that who
2: where does that go Absolutely. So let me preface, I maybe should have said this earlier, but I am absolutely not a lawyer (laughs) uh, of the constitutional variety or any other variety.
0: None of our disclaimers have made it into a podcast yet. So just to to add our disclaimer that we are only amateurs looking desperately for solutions and know nothing about the city.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we can talk about how things on paperwork and how things in reality work because they're not exactly the same. The city charter itself is not a document that most people will interact with on a regular basis. Um, the, the mayor and the city commissioners are empowered to make laws and legislation that are basically based on the city cha- charter, which are then uh, supposed to be enforced by Portland police, um, maybe the city auditor, depending on what the law is covering, a few bodies like that. Mm-hmm. The charter itself um, is, is almost more of a policy document in some ways. Um, and there's been things in it that have been technically illegal by the time they've been removed. There's mm. been things that, that are unenforceable, things like that. Okay. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more as we get into like talking about the history of the charter review process. But one of the things about Dillon's rule, and one of the reasons I think it's important to have all of this case law context, <laughs> is that Dillon's rule covers powers that are not specifically listed in the charter. It says that a municipal government Gets a power that is implied by powers specifically listed, and a municipal government gets powers that are not granted or implied, but are considered essential to the objects and purposes of the charter.
1: So, so, so for non for non lawyers, could you help? Could you help? Did you know of like an example that could help us ground this? Like, what what could that mean? Right. Or what has it meant? This is
2: this is kind of a more of a broad example, but say that uh, you have a city charter that says that the police are responsible for enforcing laws made by the mayor and city council. If the charter does not explicitly say that the police can arrest uh, people in the city, the charter still implies that they have that power. Okay. Because otherwise, uh, according to, you know, common thoughts around charters and the case law around them, in order to enforce uh, a situation with police, the police have to be able to arrest people, theoretically. Gotcha. I I don't necessarily think that that should be an implied power. (laughs) So we were talking about how the mayor and the city commissioners are empowered by the city charter. But there's not a lot within the city charter about consequences of misuse of power and those sorts of things. So holding members of the municipal government or organizations under the municipal government accountable using the charter usually means filing a lawsuit. So it's not just a easy, you broke the charter, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z to make up for the situation.
1: And it- If you file a lawsuit, and I'm assuming maybe it's like a nonprofit files a lawsuit or something with the city, who defends the city? Is that the city attorney?
2: Yeah, generally it'll be the city attorney, though if it's a specific organization within the city, there are some cases where it would be that organization or it would be an outside lawyer brought in for their specialty.
1: Like if you sue the police, like they have their own lawyer? Essentially, yeah.
0: All of this is really blowing my mind, I guess. So I, I realized that there has to be some way to establish a city. And I think that most of my conversations about this kind of like what, what comes first, like what do you do initially to um, set up the environment and set up the boundaries and stuff have all been in like communities, um, mostly churches and stuff, but mostly like faith communities or people were places where people were very close. Mm-hmm. So considering how people did the same thing for a whole city, where people are physically close, of course, but like have no other relationship necessarily is very like, it's kind of, I'm having a little bit of like a mind blown emoji moment over here. <laughs>
2: and I, I think it's really worth noting that we are the the reason that this charter has power. Like it's honestly, it's a piece of paper. It's a list of things that some people thought would be a good idea. The the members of the city, the community, respecting the power of that charter, is the real thing enabling it to have power.
0: Uh, so the the city charter is like a constitution in that it defines the scene, it sets the boundaries, it it it, it documents the relationships, and um, it by in and of itself is just um, like any other contract needs. Uh, um, outside things to enforce it and, or to, uh, agree to abide by it. You know, like if I had a contract with you, Piper, and I said, Piper, I will always bring you 12 eggs. And one time I didn't bring you 12 eggs. I gave you 11. Um, like if you said, that's fine, Josh, then it wouldn't really matter. <laughs> but if you said, Hey, you said you bring 12, maybe you should bring 12. Then, um, we'd have to like uh, talk about it and resolve that conflict. I think uh, maybe that's a good way to think about, uh, you know, this contract that it's like a, an agreement. And so it requires that kind of external um, lawyers and, you know, apparatus to enforce it if it's going to be enforced.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And Thursday, tell me if I'm full of shit, obviously. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think, I think that that is a very good way to, to put
1: it. What I do know about the city charter is I think probably the most well-known thing about it, I would assume, is that it establishes the commission form of government. So if we could talk a little bit about what that is, I think that would be a good example. And I think that is good to relate it to the history from what I've seen you write about.
2: This is probably the part of the conversation where we're going to start getting a little bit mad um, (laughs) because we got to talk about when and why Portland adopted the commission form of government. Boo.
1: So... The we don't know that it's a boo charter. yet, Josh. How do you know?
2: Why do you, oh, why do you oh, know? It's a big boo. Trust <laughs> me. The current charter uh, was adopted in 1913, and that's when the commission form of government went into effect for Portland. So let me, let me set the scene a little bit.
0: 1913, picture it.
2: <laughs> White women received the vote in Oregon in late 1912. In 1913, Black Oregonians couldn't own property or vote, but there had been some efforts to start talking about what it would take to get those rights. So brave. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about a situation in which a lot of people who have had power are suddenly talking about, okay, how do I make sure I continue having power? Mm. At that point, the commission form of government was, you know, the cool hit new thing. Galveston was one of the first cities to adopt it. After a hurricane, a bunch of wealthy business owners went around to everybody and said, so, one of the reasons that recovery from this hurricane is so hard is because of, you know, graft and mismanagement by the city. And if we just you know slim down the city council and put some commissioners in charge of really specific things, especially if they already have some, you know experience running businesses, mm. this whole system will work a lot better. <laughs> so I've heard that story. <laughs> Portland, Oregon was listening and in uh, 1913 rewrote the charter that took the city from 15 counselors to just four commissioners. Holy shit. We had 15 before? We had 15 before. We also had a mix of districts and at-large seats for how uh, people were elected. And we had a mayor council form of government rather than the commission form. So it concentrated the power into the hands of just a few people. It rewrote basically everything in terms of making it harder to update the system of government in the future. Mm -hmm. And it really was a response to what people with power wanted over everybody else. Now would be an excellent time to say boo.
1: Boo. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Other than just
1: the number of people, because clearly that, you know, is a concentration of power. Mm-hmm. What are some other ways that it reinforces power, the system that we currently have, like the commission
2: system? Let's talk about at-large seats first. Because everybody in uh, running for commissioner or mayor, well, mayor is almost always going to be an at-large seat. But the commissioners are elected by the entire city of Portland. Because they're not using uh, districts, that means that anybody who wants to run for commissioner has to work to campaign across the entire city, which Mm. is far more expensive than just a single district. It also means that uh, smaller power blocks have a harder time electing what's called called a candidate of choice. A candidate of choice is basically the person that you want elected. Um, but it's not always a person from your community. Um, okay. A good example of this is that sometimes uh, communities of color will rally around a white candidate because that's the best candidate for what they need at that time. Mm-hmm. That's why we say candidate of choice rather than you know a candidate from the community or something like
1: mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm yeah that's it. I've heard a lot of people talk about how we, for a really long time, didn't have any city commissioners that were from the east side. like it was really rare to have anyone from the east side. And it feels like that is a re- one of the results of this form of government
2: absolutely. And like, if you look at the backgrounds of a lot of uh past commissioners, I mean, there's a lot of inherited wealth, there's a lot of. Uh, business owners, folks who can afford to run these campaigns across
0: the city. Boo. Uh, Boo. We actually just, uh, in an episode that listeners maybe have heard, but uh, you haven't heard Thursday, we were just talking about um, where Mingus Maps, where Dan Ryan, where um, Carmen Rubia all come from, that these are all people that have been in and around Portland politics for a long time, been in and around the people that um, control all the money in town a long time. So these are not, uh, newcomers to politics at large and also are not people that are not attached to the existing power structures and the people making moves in the city, mostly, you know, wealthy real estate investors, I guess.
2: We recently adopted the public financing option a couple of years back. And that is at, in part supposed to mitigate all this.
1: If if it was enforced.
2: Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> enforcing it is maybe a big issue. <laughs> in this
0: context, it yeah. turns out, yeah, we mentioned enforcing it <laughs> earlier, and now we have a, a really great example. Of course, uh, listeners of the podcast will realize that Ted Wheeler stole last year's mayoral election for Portland with $150,000 self loan above the $5,000 self loan limit that was set by these um, campaign contribution laws that were not defended by the city auditor the city auditor's role was to find him appropriately and stop him from doing this stop him from keeping his campaign alive with stolen money i'll say it he's a cheater he stole it Mm -hmm. and um yeah so we already have a pretty good example of a situation where something is defined i i suppose uh i actually started this without confirming that it was defined in the charter um but something that wasn't being enforced by any kind of authority or people with any kind of actual um teeth we say but like you know any power the
2: city charter does say that the city auditor is responsible for enforcing certain rules um interestingly uh the city auditor has said some things about this charter review process because the way that the city auditor gets their budget is that it has to be approved by all the city commissioners
1: Mm
2: -hmm. so the city auditor leaving aside feelings about the specific auditor and their work who will not be running um, for reelection. So, yeah. Um, but the the city auditor is arguably not that independent under the current charter. Sure. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> there, all of these pieces um, connect in different ways.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting example. Like is that something that the charter commission or just Portlanders could push Is like, the auditor having an independent budget?
2: So the Charter Review Commission has basically said that they're only going to consider two questions at first, and everything else is going to be part of like a phase two. Hmm. So it could still be discussed, but is not on the table right this second. Okay. It is something that might be doable as an outside effort by uh, voters here in the city, but city auditor and everything that goes along with it is kind of, um, it's a little bit niche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like explain, explaining what we're, we're trying to accomplish. If we're trying to change anything about the city auditors, uh, position is going to require a lot of, uh, public education. Yeah. Yeah. Which
1: we're attempting <laughs> to do, but it's, baby steps. I, you know, it's, it's kind of boring. Mm-hmm.
0: We do have 100 listeners, so out of 650,000 Portlanders, <laughs> that's like pretty good, right? I we talked about the auditor last time.
2: You'd, you'd be surprised. Like, there's only been about 300 public comments on the charter review process so far.
1: Wow. So if we could get all our listeners to write one in, that's a percent.
2: Probably 50 <laughs> of those are people that I've personally nagged into sitting down and submitting a comment. So...
1: okay so this brings us kind of to um i from what i understand the charter review thing is like actually a new thing so previously the any changes to the city charter would have to be like an independent ballot initiative is that correct
2: yes so prior to 2007 um there were the, the main way to change the charter was through uh, ballot initiatives. There were a few other review commissions, but we actually don't have great records on some of this stuff, mm. um, in part because anything that is available is paper and going and getting paper records during COVID is a non-trivial process. Ah, uh, yeah. So this is an area I would love to research more, but haven't fully been able to. But I can I can talk about from 2007 forward pretty easily. Okay, 1917 was the first time voters said, hey, this commission form is crap and we should change it.
1: That's not very long after it was
0: put in place.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's never been that popular, but because of the way the system is set up, there's been eight major attempts to change Portland away from a commission form of government. Eight times those efforts have failed um, because there's not just the the needing to get all the, the voters to agree to it, but educating voters on why it's necessary.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a very complicated system that's kind of difficult to grasp what parts are causing the most problems unless you have a lot of time and a lot of interest to throw at it mm-hmm.
0: yes yes we uh, we agree
2: <laughs> so 2007 there was a charter review commission um because there were a bunch of things that different communities saw as problems with the the charter um so the then mayor convened a commission, um, picked commissioners um, from a bunch of different places, including labor, uh, business owners, you know, the, the folks that they're generally going to listen to at least somewhat anyhow. Mm-hmm. For folks participating in that commission who weren't really part of existing power structures, it was apparently really frustrating. Uh, one commissioner even quit partway through because they didn't want their name on the, the changes that were moving forward. Oh, wow. Most of the commissioners refused to even discuss uh, things like moving to district seat, district seats over at large representation. Um, that commission actually recommend giving the mayor more power, um, the main thing that came out of that uh, 2007 commission that was quote-unquote positive was creating a process for the reviewing the charter every single decade. There were like four ballot initiatives that came out of 2007, and two of them were just like minor details. One of them was giving the mayor more power, and then the other – was reviewing the charter. The housekeeping stuff happened. The Charter uh, Review Commission was established. Mm -hmm. um, And that mayor power thing was voted down.
1: So Thursday, uh, you're telling me that people the mayor picked to propose changes wanted to give the mayor more power?
2: Yeah, funny how that
0: happens, huh? That's that's for a while. That's for a (laughs) while that the people in power would want to concentrate more power to themselves.
1: Huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how how were the people chosen for this latest round of the Charter Review?
2: For this latest round, um, there was an open application process that people could submit an application. Um, and then each commissioner and the mayor essentially got to choose out of those batches.
1: Hmm. Of so, so it was spread
2: out among the commissioners. Right. So... It's not necessarily clear which commissioner, you know, approved, which, well, commissioner, because everybody gets the title of commissioner around here, apparently. <laughs> um, but, like, there's definitely some really interesting power dynamics that would be great to map out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely,
0: we're working on, uh, Well, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll have a bit of a map that documents some of the relationships with power in town, but it's a, it's a more of a long-term project. Mm -hmm. So maybe someday.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
1: So I have lived in Portland for like a decade, a little, a little more than that. And the whole time I've been here, I actually have heard people just say like, we have a weak mayor. We have a weak mayor. No one wants to be the mayor because it's a weak mayor. And to me, that sounds very, very bad. So just kind of like, (laughs) it just hurts. hurts me to hear like, Make the someone like one person stronger um so is that still something that people are talking about like what or are there other kinds of ways of reforming the city that are on people's minds
2: so um that's kind of a complicated question um so i'm gonna I'm gonna tackle it in parts uh-huh. um so when I said that the Charter Review Commission is only really considering two questions right now. Those two questions, one of them is uh, reforming the commission style of government, Mm -hmm. and the other is reforming how people are elected in the city. Okay. So with reforming the commission system of government, the Charter Review Commission has been looking and talking to experts about a couple of different possibilities. So... There's the, the strong mayor-weak council system. There's uh, the city manager system. There's the weak mayor system. These are all different ways of basically saying who is officially supposed to be able to do things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so with a weak mayor, officially the whole council or the whole commission is supposed to be able to make decisions and Sort of implement what's going on. I think that using the strong mayor uh, or weak mayor dichotomy to describe the commission system is maybe a little bit flawed mm. because it's usually used to describe city councils where the mayor can't just assign or unassign commissions from particular commissioners. So while on paper, our mayor kind of seems weak to compare to some of these strong mayor council systems. The reality is that the mayor can kind of upend anything happening okay. with like one change of who's in charge. Like those bureau
1: assignments, specifically.
0: Exactly. Presumably, he could come in on Monday and say, "Okay, just kidding. Hard to see does run the police now." Um, yeah and and like people would have to figure out what that meant and 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 scramble and whatever.
1: Exactly. Or like conceivably he could assign somebody no bureaus. He just wouldn't be able to get their vote on the budget.
2: Right.
0: I'm suddenly imagining one city commissioner with just one one bureau and it's like the worst bureau, the smallest one with no budget. And it's like, "Okay, have you been busy this week?" and they're like, "No. There's nothing to do."
2: That has happened in Portland's history that like oh. commission commissioners are handed different bureaus absolutely as a power move to give or take away power from the mayor's opponents.
0: You're saying that Dan Ryan, who's now in charge of the Housing Bureau and has zero experience with housing at all, um, that wasn't like because he's the most expert?
2: Exactly. This is why I say that the strong, weak mayor comparison doesn't quite... Work for Portland.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ted Wheeler probably does want us to think he's a weak mayor, oh, absolutely as far as his his autonomy and authority in the city. Um, but Thursday, according to what you're saying, it sounds like he has a lot of flexibility. Um, and and maybe it helps his neoliberal project for us to, you know, assume he has less flexibility than he actually does,
2: and I would also add on top of that that a lot of these structures are, you know, on paper. So, if say somebody wants to violate election law, um, (laughs) for example, just as
0: an example, pulling out of the hat, right, right,
2: it's not actually, you know, as hard as it should be on paper. Yeah, you could just loan
0: yourself one hundred fifty thousand dollars. We just have one story we want to tell on this podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there's there is a lot of difference between what's happening on paper and what's happening. In reality.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that this is one of those places. Mm-hmm. I think
1: that also um contributes to the difficulty of Portlanders like knowing what's going on. Because I'm I'm thinking about like, you know, everyone that I talked to that would like was like vaguely involved in politics would say that, oh, the mayor can't do anything. It's his hands are tied. It's sort of like the fact that it's so obscured and the fact that what's on paper is different than what's actually happening allows that sort of confusion to be manipulated to tell a certain story Mm -hmm. which is in this case you can't blame ted wheeler for anything right it seems (laughs) it
0: seems not dissimilar from the problems we have with say national government where a lot of the um, agreements a lot of the norms quote unquote are things that are not documented there's no one to enforce them and if people don't kind of abide as as people have been abiding and like kind of continue in the same patterns and you have a a wild one who decides (laughs) decides you know well it could be like a a a fascist you know capitalist dude grabbing for power or whatever could be any number of things um but without some sort of enforcement some sort of contract and some some sort of um organization monitoring or paying attention to what's going on it seems like there's a lot of room for um well, for, for evil corporate profiteers to take advantage of the good people of Portland. Mm-hmm.
2: Even if somebody does follow all of the laws, it's still very easy to <laughs> take advantage of this setup. And if somebody doesn't follow all of the laws, uh, the sky is perhaps the limit.
1: Um, I think what's been giving me the heebie-jeebies is that um, Mingus Maps's uh, pack that he formed, Uli- Ulysses, um. Mm-hmm. He's saying that he doesn't care what form of government there is unless it's it just has to be different. And that just doesn't pass the smell test for me. And so it has me wondering, so this is my question to you is, what could someone with sort of the goals that Mingus Maps have be wanting to do? Like, what are some like, what are some things that we should be worried about in this process that could make things even worse than
2: now? Okay, so a couple of quick caveats. <laughs> um, a lot of there's not a lot of information about this pack yeah. online. There's some there's some basic information about who's involved. There's some goals. Their website is basically just a donation form. But <laughs> there, <Heebie> are, <laughs> right, there are some things that we know. Um, so to start with, I want to say that Mingus Maps like was previously a political science professor. He's been involved in city government for quite a while. He knows the system and he knows what mm-hmm. parts of the system he can work with.
1: It seems weird for him to say he doesn't care about an outcome, given that background.
0: He has a PhD in government from Cornell. I mean...
2: Well, and this is a very narrow difference, but he's, he said specifically that the PAC will not support one form of government over another ah. by supporting anything besides the current system. Mm-hmm. Personally, he said that he's in favor of a mayor or a city manager able to manage situations. Um, I have a specific quote from an interview with KPTV that I wrote down um, where he was talking about how addressing an issue like a homeless camp is hard in Portland. Um, And Matt said, in the city of Portland, to address that problem, you have to get the commissioner in charge of the police department to work with the commissioner in charge of homeless services to work with the commissioner in charge of parks in order to address camping in some public space. And this honestly bothers me a lot because Mm -hmm. it can easily be interpreted as uh, the mayor should be able to just do anything without checking in with counselors or getting buy in from the rest of municipal government.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a strongman argument to me. Like, that we, like,
0: yeah, just let us get out of the way and do the thing. We're just going to fix stuff.
2: Absolutely. And when you combine that with MAPS's support around police and kind of an approach that I would say is less focused on building community support for a solution, I find this to be easily interpreted as an argument for a strong mayor mm-hmm. over another system of government.
1: And and I'll say this so you don't have to, I I think that Mingus maps overall is dismissive of criticism from the people of Portland. Like I his attitude overall. So I I think that he would want people to have less power and be reducing the levers
2: that we can use to affect what the mayor does, for instance. Yeah, I think that that's a very realistic <laughs> concern. Hmm. I don't
0: like that. Yeah, Mingus Maps.
2: So one of the things about the Ulysses pack that I think is really important to know is that while it's planning to use money to support changing the system of government, one of the things that it has uh, agreed or announced that it may be doing is supporting specific candidates standing for election in 2022. Now, the Ulysses Pack is currently run by MAPS's campaign managers from 2020: uh, that's uh, Robert Dobrick and Jessica Elkin.
1: This is the campaign that took money from the Portland Police Association, then said they were going to give it back and then did not. So that campaign, right?
2: Correct. Dobrik and Elkin are also, they have a public relations firm together. They're also already working with some candidates for 2022, um, including Vadim Malzirski.
0: Dun, dun, dun. Right.
2: Who, in addition to having already announced that he's running against Joanne Hardesty for her seat, um, is a commissioner on the Charter Review Commission.
1: Hmm. Cozy.
2: Which, if anybody asked me, uh, since, you know, city commissioners aren't supposed to sit on the Charter Review Commission, I feel that candidates for city commissioners also should not sit on the Charter Review
0: Commission. That seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. yeah this, this feels a little... A little icky.
2: It feels like a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And when you factor in that Vadim is very supportive of police, that Vadim has, you know, been involved in a few other um, city uh, commissions, um, it's it feels like. At least on the surface level, Maps is making sure that candidates who will support him will have the resources to run.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: And while you know, I would never want to accuse the Ulysses Pack of doing anything sketchy, since there's so little information to even judge on. It it feels super
0: sketchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel confident. Bad feels. Bad feels. No thanks. Okay, so that's the first half of our two-part episode with Thursday about the charter review process. We're going to have a second episode about the rest of the things we talked about coming out shortly, probably later this week. And if you wanted to use your newfound knowledge, we've got links in the show notes, both to the place where you can submit comments for public review for the Charter Review Council. And then also, um, there are a couple of community listening events that are happening in November. Um, yeah, there's links to all of that in the show notes, or you can just Google Portland Charter Review. They've got actually a really detailed website with all the information available. Thanks a ton for listening and we'll be back soon.